this week, firing blanks, fast moving bricks and fiddling expenses. Turmoil at Lloyd's Banking Group after Sir Victor Blank is forced to step down as chairman. Gordon Brown was keen enough to get him in to save HBOS, but has he abandoned his friend? Plus, we go to India, where the ruling Congress party has scored a surprisingly decisive election victory. Is the subcontinent ready to take its place in a new world economic order? We'll hear from an economist in New Delhi. And expenses. We've heard all about the politicians, but what about the rest of us? We'll look at some of the more outlandish corporate claims and ask our panel if they've got anything to declare. Don't worry, we'll be sticking well within the rules and rest assured that our system needs no reforming. I'm Adit Chakraborty and this is The Business from The Guardian. Well, we certainly haven't drawn a blank in securing a top panel for this week's show. Jill Train is our banking correspondent and some very strong views about what's happened at Lloyd's. Don't you? I do, mostly. Dan Roberts is our head of business. Dan, we know now about some of the bizarre things MPs have been claiming for. So give us one example of what turns up on corporate claim forms. Oh, uh, waste paper bins, I think, is the most egregious. $9,000 waste paper bins, I seem to remember being the highlight. And also here's our market watcher, Niels Prattley. Come on, Niels, don't blank me. Good morning. No, I'll, I'll be here to give um, a strong line on uh, Victor Blank. Well, as Neil said there, the search is on for a new chairman for Lloyd's Banking Group after Victor Blank, one of Gordon Brown's favourite businessmen, was forced to step down early. He brokered Lloyd's TSB's rescue takeover of HBOS last September, as Britain's biggest mortgage bank teetered dangerously close to collapse. Blank and Brown hammered out the deal at a cocktail party, and the result was a shotgun marriage between the two high street names – raising concerns about competition rules. Here's what Sir Victor had to say about the speed of the banking deal back in September. There were concerns about the future of the whole of the sector and the government, I think, felt that consolidation of the sector was something that it should now look at. They said they would allow it to go through without the need for a nine- or twelve-month investigation. And in times of great uncertainty, there's no doubt that banks couldn't easily go through long periods of uncertainty about ownership. What happened at that cocktail party was that the Prime Minister confirmed that after the earlier discussions that we'd had that that was the view that he and the authorities would take. Well, the deal did save HBOS, but it's crippled Lloyd's and Victor Blank's lost the confidence of his major shareholders. Are they justified in turning against him and has the government simply abandoned him? Let's get the viewers of the panel. Well, there's three of you round the table, which in my book's enough for a kangaroo court. So... What I think we'll do is, Niels, I want you to put the case for the prosecution. Dan, I want you to do the defence. And Jill, as is commensurate with your status, I want you to adjudicate. Niels, you first. OK, the case for the prosecution. I, I think the crimes that, uh, if we can call it that, that uh, Victor Blank committed against Lloyd shareholders are quite serious. Um, his job was to look out for the interests of Lloyd shareholders. Uh, he did a deal uh, last autumn in the midst of a banking crisis... Uh, as you heard him argue there, he had the great advantage that uh, the government had agreed to waive the normal uh, uh, competition uh, investigation. That was an advantage, but it was up to him to ensure that the disadvantage of the deal um, didn't outweigh that factor. And the disadvantage, of course, was the, uh, the toxic nature of some of the loans, particularly the corporate loans, on HBOS's balance sheet. I think three months, six months later... Uh, we can pretty much say that um, the disadvantages outweigh the advantages. The, the, the state of the HBOS loan book uh, has uh, surpa- surpassed even sort of gloomy uh, forecasts. And really, the time that uh, 
Lloyd's banking group is going to take in order to to to, see, to, to emerge on the other side with this dominant position in UK banking has has uh, grown and grown. I think it, this is sort of definition of a long term investment is a short term investment that's gone wrong. That's what's happened here. And what what particular blame should the chairman of the company take? Well, he made a bad judgment, and I think you know what, what UK banks, particularly banks in receipt of taxpayers support need is credible chairman. I think confidence in Victor, Victor Blank's ability to make good judgments had gone. And Dan, you mounted a rousing defence of Victor Blank today. Yes, I've gone soft. I don't know what, what quite came over me. But I, I suppose what came over me was a memory of how grim things felt last autumn. And I think this is one of those occasions when you have to do what historians call counterfactuals and think about what would have happened if Lloyds hadn't stepped in. And I agree with Niels that from a very narrow shareholder perspective, the, the perspective of Lloyds shareholders, it's not a great deal. In fact, that's so obvious that it, I mean, it's probably the worst deal in British corporate history. But the point is that Blank wasn't acting from the narrow point of view of, of shareholders in Lloyds at that particular moment. He was acting, as many people were at the moment at that time, out of a real fear that the whole system was coming down. And if Lloyds had hadn't stepped in and saved HBOS at that particular moment. I'm certain the government would have had to have probably have taken full ownership of HBOS as it had just done with Bradford and Bingley and it had done fairly recently with Northern Rock as it was about to have to do pretty much with RBS. And the combination of all of those rapid nationalisations of Britain's biggest banks I don't think would have been sustainable I think you would have seen more uh, knock-on effects you'd have seen other banks go under you could have probably seen the, 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 the kind of the run that we had um, uh, continue into Barclays we could have really had um, absolute chaos I mean it was pretty close to the edge back then and um, Lloyd's was encouraged by the government um, to step in and help as were some of the US banks I mean um, Bank of America was encouraged to help uh, Merrill Lynch and had that not happened Wall Street could have been in pieces by now well that's a plea for mitigation I noticed you mentioned government at least twice in the course of your defence how do you explain the role of defence in supporting Victor Bank and then effectively hanging them out to try yeah, I think um, pragmatism's taken over um, um, uh, in government at the moment. This is a government that's got a lot of other bigger things on its mind. And very narrowly, they also um, took the, taking the view at the moment that they want Lloyds to be um, recapitalised and in order to get support from shareholders for the capital raising we saw this week, uh, a head needed to roll. So regardless of the rights and wrongs of whether he deserved to go I think the view was taken that um, if they were going to get fresh capital in um, they needed a scapegoat and he was a convenient one. Well, we don't have Judge Judy but we do have Judge Jill. (laughs) What's your take? Thank you so much. Um, Look, (coughs) I would say the people most grateful to Victor Blank must be the shareholders of HBOS because they would have nothing without Lloyd's. Uh, the taxpayer must be grateful in some ways because otherwise it would have the pain of HBOS all to itself, whereas at least it's sharing it with the Lloyd's shareholders. Um, if you're a Lloyd shareholder, yes, you're pretty wound up. I mean, the dilemma that big city institutions had in December when they were being asked to vote on this deal is that so many of them had, had shares in both banks and the ones who are more inclined to support Blank were the ones who had more HBOS because otherwise they were facing big losses on their books. The reality is, you know, Blank was encouraged to do this deal by Gordon Brown. You, you could say he could have walked away, but if you do look back at those times, HBOS was going bust and it was a pretty frantic period of time. He could have walked away later, perhaps. But right now... Look sh- out, Niels is desperate <laughs> over there to, to I'm already I'm, I'm, I'm going to come to the bother boy, Prattley, in a moment. But, but, just, but, just, but should he have stayed or should he have gone? Uh, he had to go because the reality is that if you're 
UKFI's job, UK Financial Investments, run by John Kingman, sits in two rooms in the Treasury. Its job is to make sure that it can sell the shares that, that we as the taxpayer own in Lloyd's Banking Group. Without blank, there is a chance that the investment case could improve, not because blank is the person who is running Lloyd's, but because it changes the sentiment around the shares. Bank chairmen have always had a particularly peculiar status in the financial world, and um, perhaps new blood makes a better investment case. Come on, Neil, put a boot in. I, I just think, I'm, look, I'm not, not arguing that there wasn't a deal to be done. Of course there was a deal to be done. I just think the, between Lloyd's and the government taking over HBOS, I just think from, from the point of view of Lloyd's shareholders, they had a right to, to, to expect a better better terms, i.e. Uh, Victor Blank could have put, put his foot down with Gordon Brown and said, underwrite some of these losses if you want us to step in and save your banking system. And... I, I think that's why the the anger is so great amongst Lloyd Shelters. And, and that is a good point, because when Lloyd's was potentially going to take Northern Rock off the government's hands a year ago, the previous September, it did walk away because it, it couldn't get those guarantees, or at least that's the rumour in the city. So, I mean, that is a valid point. Um, you know, the other story in this is that business and politics are, really don't mix, do they? Because Blank had really wound himself into the political arena. You know, I think he listed Gordon Brown as one of his friends. His office is adorned with pictures of politicians and such like. And, um, well, he's also learnt the hard way that politicians will walk away when, when it suits you. Dan, I want you to defend him again. Oh, I think he's the Michael Martin figure of uh, British business. I think he's being... You're um, not defending Michael out. Martin? <laughs> <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I actually, I, do, I mean, I've, I have no time for, for Martin and I, I'm, I'm not particularly fond of Victor Blank, but I do think they're both convenient scapegoats. Um, and um, without wanting to get into the expenses scandal, I find it astonishing that, um, that MPs who have been uh, had their caught with their hands in the till are now turning on the speaker as if it was all his fault. And I think that um, actually the whole of British um, uh, banking industry and the government was, um, uh, was on board for this deal at the time. And most of the shareholders are on board for this deal at the time. And yes, with hindsight, we didn't know quite how bad things were going to be. But um, and if we'd known that then, we probably would have all buried our heads in the sand. Well, that's our take. But to have your say, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. To India now, where victory for the ruling Congress party has already boosted the stock market and helped a recovery for the rupee. The wind's gone some way towards allaying fears of instability in the world's largest democracy. India's often spoken about in the same way as China, one of the world's most important emerging markets, along with Brazil and Russia. They're, together, they're known as the BRIC economies. Well, before we get the views of our panel, let's hear from Joyti Ghosh, Professor of Economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University in New Delhi. She remains to be convinced that India is able to deliver what's expected of it. I think the difficulty is that the policymakers think we're already stepped up to the plate, we're already there. And that's the difficulty because uh, the hard work in terms of the basic development project still has to be done. There's a lot of tendency to equate us with China simply on the basis of our fast growth rate and, you know, things like the foreign investment. But we really haven't done the basic things in terms of provide minimum living conditions to every citizen, provide universal school education. We still don't have the law that uh, requires universal school education. Uh, we still don't have, we're not even anywhere near it at the moment. We still don't find, provide minimum health conditions to the people. We still don't have a road to every village. So we still don't have full electrification of all households of India. So we're so far behind on the basic development project. And the idea that you can take the top 10% of the population and sort of transport them to first world lifestyles 
and forget about the 90%. That idea has unfortunately taken root. And unfortunately, I think the government that has been elected will interpret the election results as a license to, much, to do much more in terms of neoliberal reforms. So we are really behind the curve internationally. I mean, globally, everybody is moving towards nationalizing banks, renationalizing pensions, and so on. This government wants to privatize the pensions, wants to privatize the state banks, and so on. So we're really far behind the curve. I think what is likely to happen is that if they go ahead and do these things, which they have promised to do, then in the, for a short while we'll have a boom because a lot of foreign capital will come flooding in. Then eventually those contradictions will play out, and then we'll have a really big crisis at the outside within two years, at the outside. Two years to the next crisis. Cheery stuff there. Well, let's turn to the panel now. Um, and to you first, Nils, because I'm interested in investors' view of this. To the north of India, you've got Pakistan, mm. and we all know what's going on in Pakistan. Uh, half the country seems to be taken over by Taliban fighters. To the south, you've got Sri Lanka, and Sri Lanka's been all over the news recently. To what extent do you think investors differentiate between different countries in a region? Well, I think in the case of India, I mean, it's really a sort of India versus China um, comparison that's made. Um, I mean, I was prompted last night to sort of look up what Jim Rogers, who's a, who's a very famous uh, American investor who's made a lot of money out of emerging markets and commodities, um, has said about this. Because he's had very strong views on this, that he's very, very bullish on China and has said, uh, I think on several occasions, that uh, he wouldn't invest a dime in, in India. Uh, not convinced at all. That, that certainly used to be his view. I'm not sure whether it still is. But, uh, I mean, he, he, the points that he makes are very similar to those we heard in the clip that um, uh, the state of the education system in India is not up to, not up to scratch, certainly not up to China's level. Uh, the level of infrastructure with these trucks rolling across India at uh, sort of 15 miles an hour on, on average. Um, and he also talks about sort of the political... Uh, the, the constantly changing um, uh, political direction of the country and the reliance on this Nehru-Gandhi uh, dynasty. Uh, and so he, he can't see it, and he sort of looks... Uh, I thought it was quite, quite a telling, telling point he made that, you know, you look across the world and see where are the Indian-made goods in the same way that you see the, the Chinese-made goods. Uh, well, you it, could say that you get quite a lot of Indian-made services. You I get mean, a lot of Indian-made services, phone. yeah. I mean, yeah, undoubtedly, India is a sort of a big economy. And, you know, his point is that, you know, it is so big that a lot of the growth is directed inwardly, uh, whereas China looks towards exports, uh, which may be a better, a better route for an emerging economy. Um, so if you're I, an inward-looking economy in the middle of a massive global downturn, arguably you're quite well-placed right now. Arguably right now, but um, what's the long-term story, I guess, would be the repast. Well, Dan, on that... Just a few weeks ago, with the G20 summit here in London, and back then there was a lot of talk about how India, China, South Africa, you know, the BRICS and others besides were going to be the new face of the world economy. Was all that talk just a bit previous? Was it all just too excitable too soon? No, I think that I think it's very much still the future, and the uh, the crisis uh, we've had in Western economies has only sped up that um, transition. And actually, if I were picking which types of sectors I'd want my developing economy to be in. I think services, and particularly high-tech services, which is what India specialises in, 
is very much um, uh, a preferable place to be. Um, the trouble with manufacturing is there's always a factory down the road in a poorer country than you able to undercut you. And the trouble with um, with agriculture and um, commodities, which is sort of the South Africa, Brazilian, uh, 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 Brazil and Russia's um, problem, is that you're very vulnerable to big swings in in um, in, in demand, um, as we've seen with the, the recession. Um, this year and India's future I think is is very upbeat I mean I um, recently interviewed the, the boss of Infosys which is one of the sort of uh, one of Bangalore's sort of bright uh, tech companies and I was very um, persuaded by his vision of the future which is a, a world in which um, um, very much as Thomas Friedman has written um, uh, a flattened world where um, everybody speaks English and you can um, buy and sell services around the world as easily as you buy and sell goods and that benefits a huge country with a relatively well-educated workforce that is English-speaking, that has um, uh, that is connected to the rest of the world is not held back by crappy truck services, it's actually got a broadband pipe straight into uh, you know your banks in London and does all their back office work and increasingly not just the back office work but I think over time we'll, we'll do a lot of front office work as well. Well Jill, one of the things that comes through in what Dan's saying is that if you've got a flat work you don't really get big differences in political ideology either. And what we heard from Joyty was actually India seems to be following the same kind of liberalising economic model that we are very familiar with here in the UK and in America, privatising banks, privatising pensions. Do you think India's repeating some of the mistakes we've learned over the past couple of years rather painfully that we should have avoided? Well, you can see if you're the Indian government why you'd want to be doing public offerings of these shares, of, of these companies, because obviously it's, it, it helps your... Um, exchequer so extraordinarily and I, I noticed that the Indian stock market's been moving wildly on rumours about, yeah. about all these potential IPOs and things that could come and they've obviously had some very successful um, uh, IPOs of late from companies like Real Estate and Unitech and such like. Um, are they making the same mistakes in the past? I mean have all our privatisations really been a total disaster? And as I start to think about this I'm beginning to wonder if the answer is yes because BT is suddenly now emerged on my head but you know BP, is that a total disaster? I mean, it's difficult to know because, I mean, so many of our share sales happened, what, 20 years ago that it's difficult to remember. It'll be interesting to see what our experiences is when we're now re-trying to reprioritise the banks that we've only just taken control of. I mean, let's face it, our government's policy isn't to really nationalise banks for... Um, the long to, to, term. For the long term, it's really to try and nationalise them, to stabilise them before it can flog them off again. And back last summer, when we were talking about Barclays being bought up a li- well, a little chunk of Barclays being bought up by the Chinese. There was a lot of talk about how the Chinese and the Middle East sovereign wealth funds were going to come in and start buying up the commanding heights of our of our new economy. What's happened to all of that? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, the investors in Barclays haven't done quite as well as they might have hoped to have done. And clearly the sovereign wealth fund themselves uh, around the Middle East and um, China and the rest have, have had difficulties with their own investments as stocks have plunged everywhere. So... I mean, everybody retrenches, it looks like, when they start to lose money. So we'll have to wait and see when they start to re-emerge again. Money's too tight. Looks like it. Now, expenses. And virtually the only person to come to defence of beleaguered MPs, apart from themselves, of course, has been good old Stephen Fry. Doorstep by a camera crew, the entertainer and full-time national treasure wrote off the current revelations as not that important. Warming to his subject, he went on to say this. Although, of course, anybody can talk about snouts in troughs and go on about it, for journalists to do so is almost beyond belief. Beyond belief. I know lots of journalists. I know more journalists than I know politicians. 
and I've never met a more venal and disgusting crowd of people when it comes to expenses and allowances. And the idea that, oh, we've all lost faith in politics because it's nonsense. It's, it's a journalistic made-up frenzy. Well, this is the venal and disgusting business podcast. Actually, the days of journalists treating themselves and contacts to lavish lunches are, by and large, over. But what about the business community? Dan, you've been doing some bit of digging into this, haven't you? Well, I thought it was just worth reminding people just how excessive some of the business expense um, scandals have got in, in recent years. And it's just worth reminding people of um, Comrade Black, for example, um, uh, um, Dennis Kozlowski, uh, who many people in this country would have heard of, but it was the boss of Tyco, was probably the granddaddy of all expenses, um, kings. And uh, he did things like throw parties in Sardinia for his wife, where he invited sort of um, country singer Jimmy Buffett to come and, um, and, and, and do the music. And this whole thing set them back about one and a half million dollars. It was all put on the company tab. And then there's John Thane at Merrill Lynch, who um, right at the heart of the credit crunch, um, decided it was a good time to do up his office and spent an absolute fortune on on, on sort of bits of furniture and um, um, even our dear old Fred Goodwin was um, was was known to sort of uh, fly fruit in from uh, from France to um, to, uh, uh, to to, uh, to in, in his and redecorate the hall outside his office with the most expensive wallpaper you could find. Now all of these things um, uh, they're all a bit of fun, but it's just a reminder to that um, uh, actually um, what we've seen in, in, in Westminster is fairly small beer. I would say the one big difference I think where, where businesses have very little tolerance for is outright deception. And I think we've seen quite a lot of deception emerging in the last few weeks out of the MPs expenses scandal, which in most jobs would get you sacked. Um, but on the scale of the, 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 the gluttony, I think they've got somewhere to go. Nils. We've learned quite a lot of details this week about how the House of Commons actually works. We've learned about the fees committee and all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Just talk me through how, in a business, something as ridiculous as a lam- gold lame shower curtain or an expensive waste paper bin, how does that get signed off? Well, it gets signed off, I guess, ultimately, because the, um, um, the expenses department um, does what the chief executive once you know if the chief executive submits a submits a bill for this there's nobody with the power to to question whether it's legitimate expense or not um i i'm sure that goes on i mean i don't think it's sort of gratuitous things like that are are actually that commonplace i think what is really commonplace is um whether you call it expenses or perks the sort of the, the corporate entertainment the uh um, you know the trips to the opera, the the box at Lords, the golf days, all this sort of stuff, which is which can be filed under business expenses because some it can be said that some sort of business activity takes place at these on these occasions, i.e., meeting contacts or journalists or, or, or journalists. Yeah, we should be sort of quite clear that you know, I mean, you know, I mean, there was, I think this really reached the height of the nineteen nineties, where, I mean, quite honestly. Uh, you know, it was one expected to get sort of like two or three invites for every England uh, home game at Wembley. I mean, it was it was quite absurd. Um, so a lot of this goes on, and we shouldn't forget that all this stuff goes on the on the corporate tab, and it's all all stuff that gets in the way of um, uh, you know shareholders receiving dividends and um, pensioners increasing uh, the value of the assets in their pension pot. It, it, it's all it's all there. I think this is a very interesting area. I think that quite a lot will be quite a lot of spotlights will be turned on this area in, in the next few months. 
Jill, how do you feel about being branded venal and disgusting? I mean, is, is there, is there, was there a golden period of journalism when we all used to live it up and is that all over? Or I think it... I missed it. I don't know when it happened, but I, I certainly didn't experience too Dan, much golden periods. I, I mean, I, you know, I'd be lying if I hadn't been to the odd, you know. Gala dinner? Well, I'm not sure Formula if One. gala dinners. I've been to the odd, I will admit to having gone to Hot the odd balloon. sporting event and such like, but um, is that really living it up? It's quite, you know, I'm not sure what it is. Dan, what's the most outlandish expense claim you've ever signed nothing, off? You, nothing on my expenses. <laughs> that I've ever signed off. I yeah. think that would be unfair. Come on. <laughs> you signed uh, mine. There's nothing on I, mine, Dan. I, I, um, no, I, I mean, I, I signed off quite a lot of uh, journalist expenses over the years and, uh, and submitted quite a few of my own. And I have to say that very... F- I, I can't think of a single one that would, um, would make the pages a private eye. Um, uh, he says, rapidly, yeah. just checking yeah. his brain. So, um, it's all pretty tame stuff. And actually, um, I think a lot of um, a lot of journalists uh, feel an obligation to go out in the evenings and um, and spend time with contacts that, um, to the outside world, can all look very glamorous. And um, uh, but but actually, to most of us, uh, after a while, it becomes a real chore. If you don't do it, you don't pick up tidbits, you don't pick up stories. Um, uh, and actually, the number of rubber chicken dinners I've had in posh Park Lane hotels at some dreary awards ceremony out of duty uh, vastly exceeds the ones I've actually enjoyed. So, And I, and I think um, uh, to that extent, um, you know, these things do look quite lavish when they put down in print and out of context. But at the time, a lot, a lot of this, these perks are not actually the, quite as enjoyable as all that. So there we go. Not so much venal and disgusting as dull and unimaginative. That's it for this week. We're all off out now for a very expensive meal now on Dan's account. Thanks to my panels, Jill Trainer, Dan Roberts and Nils Prattley. Remember, if you want to have your say on any of our topics, post your comment on our blog at guardian.co.uk slash the business. Our producer this week is Douglas Hardy. I'm Edith Shakaporty and that was The Business. <laughs>